Hi there. It's me, Laura Wasser, the divorce attorney and the founder of It's Over Easy, the online divorce service. I've been practicing family law for over 20 years, and I've worked on thousands of divorces, shepherding people through what may be one of the most terrifying times in their lives. Along the way, I often have to remind people to lower their expectations. When dealing with matters of the heart, rules simply don't apply because all's fair in love and war. So welcome to the All's Fair podcast. Open your heart, fasten your seatbelts, and let's go. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura. I'm Johnny Rains, and this is All's Fair. Laura, did you know that our quarantining episode with tips for singles, couples, and co-parents is one of the most downloaded podcasts of the spring? I didn't, but I do now. And I have to say, I'm not really surprised. I mean, I have been getting so many questions from people, groups asking me if I would come on their webinars and their Instagram lives. Nobody knows what the hell is going on. And so they seem to want some guidance from, you know, people who may know what to do about custody and what to do about support orders, given that the world is upside down right now. Well, while the world's been upside down, you've certainly been busy. So I know how you've been passing the time, as you just were saying, some of the different webinars and things you've done. But what else are you doing to pass the time? What a great lead-in, Johnny. I've been drinking my ass off. <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> what do you know about that? Fortunately, I do not have to get into the car. And fortunately, if I did, I would be using, ready, ready, wait for it, Soberlink. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did see you on your Instagram, by the way, driving from where, like your d- garage to your driveway, was it? Yes. And that was at about 930 in the morning. So that's a little early even for me on a Monday to be drinking. You hadn't had a drinking. drink yet, you're saying? No, no. I'm waiting until well, this podcast is over at 11. <laughs> according to a new study released by alcohol.org, it shows that citizens in every state in this country admit they've been drinking on the job while under quarantine. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that I've almost always drink on the job, but that's because I am available to my clients 24-7. So I will say to them like, hey, if you call me after 6.30 or 7 at night, quarantine or not, it is likely that A, I will have a glass of wine or two in me and B, I will forget to bill you. But it's okay. I've been doing this a long time. I usually can still give them accurate advice. I think it's definitely more of a concern for people who have, in all seriousness, had issues in the past, have issues currently, certainly are driving. And if they're with their kids and they are impaired, driving or not, not okay. Well, if they live in Virginia or tiny New Hampshire, apparently those are the states where people are drinking the most during the day at work in quarantine. And how did you determine this? Was this from the bastions of journalistic excellence, TMZ, Johnny? Well, not just them, but okay, there's yes. also the New York Post who caught the story. But really, all this research comes from alcohol.org and their recent survey of people across the country. And OK, so just to be fair, they're surveying people as to how much they are drinking. The people that are already like blacked out, not answering the survey. <laughs> just saying. I guess you've got a good point. <laughs> just saying. Seriously, though, abusing alcohol or any other substance is not a joke, especially when your kids are around. Drinking to the point of excess can not only ruin your figure but it can also ruin your relationships. To drive this point home, let me introduce you to our first guest today who is Zooming with us from North Carolina. He is the Vice President of Business Development at Soberlink, which is basically the gold standard in alcohol monitoring used by family law judges, attorneys, and healthcare professionals across the U.S. They're also one of our sponsors, and we are grateful for their support. I said before we started recording today, when I first met and saw Chris for the first time on Zoom, I am a believer because as a custody litigator. I have many, many clients who, but for Soberlink, would probably not be able to be exercising their custodial time. Really great parents who in the past have had issues. And when a judge or even their co-parent either orders or agrees to Soberlink, that is kind of the thing that makes everybody feel comfortable about it. And it keeps the people who have had alcohol problems, keeps them honest because you have to, Chris will tell us how it works, but I just, I really want to let you know and please tell everybody at your at your place that uh, you guys rock. So welcome to All Sphere, Chris Beck. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. We've been waiting for you for a long time. Um, let's hear a little bit about you because we do like to hear, we'll talk about Soberlink, but what's your whole deal? You have a very interesting background, yes? I guess so. I mean, I lived a little bit. Okay. <laughs> so where'd you get your psychology BA? Yeah, so I started at the University of California, Irvine. I graduated a long time ago. And now, um, 
you know, I'm married. I live in North Carolina, so I moved from California to North Carolina. Most people would ask me, why did you do that? I still don't have a really good answer. Um, so that will be another um, podcast that will get that answer from me. But uh, <laughs> Well, where's, where's <laughs> Sheila, your wife, from? Is she from here or there? Well, I'm, I did meet her here in North Carolina, so you're absolutely right. That's a long story. Love is but the best is she reason. A, a Southern girl? She is, yes. Okay. So, well, that's uh, your born answer. In Louisiana, <laughs> born in Louisiana, and uh, I met her out here in North Carolina, and here we are. Ten years after we got married, we decided to move to North Carolina and be permanent residents here. You guys are licensed foster parents, yes? That's correct, yeah. So we have two biological kids. And then we have one adopted child, and then now we're currently fostering a our you know be our fourth child, um, and she's about one years old right now. Oh my gosh, that's fun! How does that? Full how house. does is it is a full house, especially in quarantine? I was without being in poor taste. I was going to liken it to the fact that right before quarantine started, we I fostered and now have adopted a puppy, and it is actually a really good time to have a puppy because I can you know house train them and everything else, but definitely a little bit more um, complex to have a new baby. Well, Laura, I don't mean to scare you, but my wife and I did start with fostering puppies. <laughs> I'm done. Watch the out, Laura. The kitchen is closed. I have two <laughs> boys and I have two dogs and there is no room in this home for anybody else but us. No um, room at the inn. No room at the inn. Tell us about Soberlink. How, t- how does it work? Sure. So, you know, I believe Soberlink's the best option for real-time alcohol monitoring, right, in family law. Um, you know, we have a state-of-the-art system um, that combines a portable breathalyzer with wireless connectivity and includes cutting-edge technologies like facial recognition, tamper detection, advanced reporting for ease of use. Uh, we provide real-time documented proof for sobriety that reduces litigation and really create safer parenting time. You know, attorneys can present this data in their cases in front of judges and it provides peace of mind to the concerned party or it em- I like it empowers the monitor client um, to earn that trust back that maybe they lost, you know, right. and document that sobriety. And on the other end, the, the non-monitored parent has a sense of peace. You don't have to always be worrying what's going on over there. Is he or she being safe? How are my kids? I mean, that I, I use it a ton for that, for people that are like, I'm really uncomfortable. I don't know what to do. I don't want to share custody. And I believe that it's better for kids to be able to experience time with both of their parents, if at all possible. So if we can keep them safe, how do we do it? That's why I love this product. So, okay, so let's say... One of my co-parents is listening to this podcast and goes, wow, Wasser really seems like she's boozing up. This is an issue for me. And we agree that I'm going to use Soberlink so that he feels better about whatever's going on over here during quarantine with the puppy and the drinking and listening to Johnny's edits on all the All's Fair scripts. So I order a kit. Is that how it works? Yeah, pretty much what you would do is you would go online, um, press the order button, and everything's done from the comfort of your home, which is great. You don't have to go into a store and be like, oh, I have a problem. (laughs) They just send it to you? That's right, yeah. We'll just send it to you. You'll call our customer service team to get activated, and you're off and running. We have two different programs you can choose from. Um, In family law, it's a level one and level two, so it's either around parenting time or daily testing, which is our level two program. And so daily testing would be, guys, I mean, this happens too. There are a lot of parents who have had issues, and for whatever reason – are in some kind of a 12-step program, they're out of rehab, they may not have a ton of custody. And when they have custody, they probably are holding it together. However, those late nights, something comes in, whatever. So the sober link testing allows for testing at any time, whether you have the kids or not. Now, what happens? So do you blow into it? I know there's facial recognition, but what happens? My kit comes in the mail. I hook everything up. Where does it go? My, My computer phone. Yeah. So our technology is remote. It's an actual device. And what happens is it um, travels with you. You breathe into it and submit the tests from anywhere at any time. And then those reports are sent to our secure web portal where the information is stored. And then it's sent to anyone that's on the monitoring agreement. So it could be the acts, it could be a mental health professional, could be the attorneys that are involved in the case or a GAL, matter of fact. So um, it can GAL go to anyone that's on that. GAL is guardian ad litem, guys. Agreement. 
G-A-L. That's correct. Yes. Okay. And just so everybody yes. listening knows, I mean, as I said, I am a believer. I, I, I don't use this product myself, but like probably, <laughs> probably six or seven times a week, I am getting emails from either clients of mine or uh, from the opposing party saying, you know, and almost always, again, with this in place, I have seen tremendous success rates. Very few times in the two or three years that I think I've been using this has a test come in. We call it like a dirty test because there's also drug testing that goes on with other stuff, but with the Soberlink, because I really do think if you know that you're being held accountable, it, it does. It keeps you honest, so to speak. So is it just for alcohol then? It yes. is. It's just for alcohol. Yes. And what about false positives? Like using the Laura analogy, if she had, you know, somebody else blow into the machine, how would the system know that it wasn't actually her doing the blowjob? <laughs> I don't know if I, I would have phrased it exactly like that, Johnny, but I, I agree. You know, um, the person submitting the test, if it's not that person, correct. Um, we use facial recognition software to confirm identity. And our software would say, hey, that's somebody else. That's not the monitor client. So that would be a non-compliant test. Let's say that you were talking about other types of false positives. We have a retest cycle. That's part of our program. So if you submit a test and it's positive, our device will shut down for 15 minutes and allow the monitor client to rinse their mouth out. Maybe they um, had Listerine after they brushed their teeth and Listerine has alcohol in it. So it would produce a positive, but it only lasts in your mouth cavity for about two to three minutes. So in the retest cycle, um, 15 minutes later, you would retest and be compliant if it was that Listerine. So we have systems in place to reduce that noise or quote unquote false positive. This reminds me of a story. Look, I digress a bit from Soberlink, but I had a client whose um, ex-wife and the mother of his child had an alcohol problem. So two things would happen. One, she would actually drink quite a bit of Listerine. First, she would use that Listerine, you know, the, this is the reason why I'm coming in, not to have Soberlink, it was a while ago. But he said that she was slurring and she seemed weird and she said, look, smell my breath. So under the sink, about three or four weeks later, he found like literally 12 or 13 empty Listerine bottles. Big problem because Listerine does have alcohol in it. So then she was precluded from having custodial time with the kids. She was supposed to do a 12-step program. Um, she was supposed to do rehab. She left the rehab early. She kind of forfeited most of her custodial rights. And about a week later, um, she drove her car into the front of a pink dot. Yes, she was fine. No. This girl actually went to high school with us, Johnny. Um, I was going to say it sounded like a familiar story. <laughs> and my client, which again, she was fine. And, and now I believe because I've seen him since she's sober and they do share custody. But at the time he said, isn't it interesting that she drove her car into the one place that would have delivered the alcohol? Like she didn't even have to leave the house. <laughs> anyway, see, sober link. Anyway, <laughs> question. Can lawyers use Soberlink test results either to, to their benefit or to the detriment of the other side if they have a court case? Is that evidence admissible? Yes. So the answer is yes. Um, Soberlink technology has gone through extensive testing and protocol management to secure FDA clearance as a medical device um, that can um, measure BAC or blood alcohol content. Uh, we've also had a third-party research paper published about our admissibility of our technology um, and how it stands up to the Dauber and Fry standard. That uh, report's actually on our website if you have listeners that want to go and, and look it up. Okay, and we'll tell you guys how to get to that website at the end of the interview. Um, how long has Soberlink been around? We've been around since 2011. Um, okay. Yeah, so it's been a while. I think you only came up on my radar three or four years ago, but man, I just, it's so helpful. And yeah. one of my notes here says to ask, you know, why you guys are better than the alternative, but are there alternatives? Are there, I mean, you don't need to tell me their names. Are there even other companies that do this? Yeah. I mean, there are other companies that do this. Um, you would why see are it you guys the best? The, sure. Sure. Well, <laughs> um, I would like to, I like to answer that one, of course. <laughs> But I think really what it comes down to is that our team understands the disease of alcohol use disorder. You know, um, no one has a product quite as robust as, as our device with real-time 
results, facial recognition technology, advanced reporting, our history of use with over 170,000 cases that we've actually had since 2011. Our Soberlink device is on its fifth generation, I think, which is really important. So we continue to innovate, make sure that it's easy for those clients to use. And, you know, I see in the office that our team takes a lot of pride in making sure that we um, have the best customer service possible because they're delicate cases and we have to be mindful in each call. And I am always surprised at our operation team, how well we communicate. It's been great. So Chris, I have to ask, what is Soberlink doing in the age of COVID-19? I'm sure that on lockdown, you've got people that are more worried, people that are more tempted and people, like I said, at the top of the show that really need information and help during this pandemic. Very, very great question. You know, we do meet the uh, guidelines as an essential healthcare product um, due to our FDA clearance um, as a medical device and our use in addiction treatment, workplace compliance, and family law. You know, we're able to work during this time. Although, as a company, we make sure that our employees are safe, so we've asked them all to work from home. We are a technology company. So we pride ourselves in making sure that um, we have that ability. So all of our customer service team is taking calls from their cell phone and uh, able to answer every question that clients have. I mean, we really haven't missed a beat, which has been great. That's nice. And you guys are nationwide, correct? We are. We service, um, you know, the entire country plus Canada. We have some devices in the UK and Australia as well. Nice. And do you, when you sign up, do you own the device or do you rent the device? Is it like like a sparklets water machine? And when you have the upgrades, can we trade in and get a new one? Or how does that work? <laughs> so you actually own the device. Um, so everyone goes in initially and will purchase a device. You know, like I said earlier, we have two different devices. We have a cellular device or a Bluetooth connect device, as we call it. You can purchase either one of those. Um, they work exactly the same. They just communicate the signal differently, one through cellular, one through Bluetooth, but you do own that device. We do buy it back at the end of the monitoring agreement for a little bit of money just to help net the total cost down at the end of the program. That's nice. And then if you have to come back, do you get like a second time discount? Is there a punch card? How does that work? <laughs> you know, that's not a bad Asking idea. Asking for a friend. <laughs> not a bad idea, but um, I'll take that under advisement, but today, no, we don't have any punch cards, and uh, you know, we hope that um, our our devices are used in in a time period in, in which you know our experts say is about a year until we see clinical change of behavior. So that's something that your clients can note. I mean, that's where our professionals have said this is where we start to see change in behavior. So they're replacing their poor behavior, maybe or poor judgment, for better behavior, which is compliant and you know, we see things change. Besides like a Listerine, what are some other things you've heard of that are like some false positives? Like is there rum cake? Or I mean, I know I've, I've had, <laughs> I have had, having grown up in Southern California in the 80s, I have a lot of friends that have been through programs and rehab. And so we've all heard the stories, you know, with poppy seeds and urine tests for, you know, ma- marijuana or THC or opioids. Tell us about some of the alcohol ones, Chris. Yeah, it's hard to say, you know, um, you know, Listerine, anything that has alcohol in it, you know, can cause a positive. That's what our technology measures. It's a fuel cell technology. So the way the technology works is that when the alcohol enters the fuel cell, it creates a reaction to the alcohol. And that's what creates a BAC level. And um, if you have something like um, Listerine, I guess um, maybe there's some hair products that you're putting in your hair that contain alcohol, perfumes possibly contain alcohol. So you have to be mindful of what's around you when you're doing alcohol monitoring. Um, I would always recommend eliminate all those things. Start reading labels. Start understanding what might cause a positive. Um, Of course, our system will help prevent false positives by confirming that first positive and having that as part of the testing protocol. But I would like to eliminate all those first positives, if possible, eliminate that stuff from your house. Well, have you had, I mean, as a result of all of the hand sanitizers, all the things that have (laughs) alcohol in them, have you been having any false positives as a result during this COVID-19 time? 
Yeah, well, because of our testing protocol, we haven't seen um, a rise in any of false positives or in that data. Um, and that goes, that's a testament to our engineers and um, who put together the program. But um, I would assume that hand sanitizer is being used a lot more than it was yesterday. So maybe some of our competition might be having some issues. But um, today, we have not seen any spikes in, in positives. Now, just so that our listeners understand, I think I do. <clears throat> Blood alcohol mm -hmm. level varies based on the size of the individual, right? So if I have a couple glasses of wine and I'm 5'4 and weigh 125 versus you having a couple glasses of wine, my blood alcohol level will go up higher than yours just as a result of size, correct? It has nothing to do with like, <laughs> I'm, I've got a wooden leg. I've been drinking forever. I could drink you <laughs> under the table, Chris. That makes no difference, right? There, there are a lot of variables. Um, the amount of time that you have been drinking, the years that you've been drinking does make a little bit of, of, a, of a difference in BAC if you have two people of exactly the same um, weight and gender. Uh, because gender is a variable, weight's a, a variable. Um, what else? Ethnicity can be a, a, a variable as well. There's so many different things that it's hard to actually say, this is how alcohol eliminates in the body. You can make a generalization, but you can't say this is it, and it, it goes on this curve. That's not how it works. There's too many variables involved. Does it differ at different times of the month or different times, like I've menstrual cycle or what you've eaten mm -hmm. in any given day? Does that affect it as well? How much you eat does. I'm not sure about the, the previous thing that you mentioned, but uh, it, as far as what you eat, yeah, that does have an effect. And, you know, the more you have in your stomach, the more that can get absorbed. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're testing to see if you have any alcohol at all. Our program that we have with Soberlink is a zero tolerance program. So even if you have a little bit of alcohol, it will register a positive. So our um, system actually rates positives anything above 0 0.005. So 0 0.006, it will say Bam. you have a positive. Yes. And how does it I, remind me, is it a, based on a specific time that you have to take it or does the request during the monitoring period, does somebody say, this is when I want you to test or do they just know when they're going to be testing? Yeah. So most of our programs, our most popular program is around the parenting times. So modern day orders from judges is you are not allowed to drink while you have the children in your possession. So level one parenting time is our most popular program. They'll test an hour before the parenting time period. They'll test maybe every four hours during the parenting time. And then right after the parenting time has ended. So you book in the entire parenting time period and have documented sobriety. Um, but for those, you know, maybe higher risk cases or those that have gone into treatment before, our level two, where you're testing on a schedule three to four times a day, that is more of we're trying to change behavior. You know, you right. had a behavior in the past where you would drink, but now here today, we're trying to change it with positive reinforcement. Every time you test and get a compliant, that's another day that you are in recovery and you are managing your program. I get that. That positive reinforcement with the puppy is definitely happening here. I mean, you can't treat you are right. every time yes. you pass. Chris, thank you so much for joining us no. today on All's Fair to tell us about Soberlink. You guys are the experts in remote alcohol monitoring tech, and we love your inspirational message on your Instagram feed, which is at Soberlink. Check them out, guys. For family law judges, attorneys, and healthcare workers listening, how can people find out more about Soberlink? So, yeah, you go to uh, Soberlink.com. We do have a family law-specific section if you are a professional, we do have a professional section with all of our white papers and documents that you would really enjoy. Chris, could you also just tell us a little bit about the webinar you're doing with the Association of Family and Consolation Courts and Our Family Wizard? I think that ties in with uh, the coronavirus and the pandemic. Yeah, I think a, a common uh, term in our building is to pivot. You know, we used to do a lot of live presentations and education with our program, um, but now with the pandemic in front of us, we can't really leave our house. So, you know, we're having to do things differently. We're having to do things virtually. So um, we partnered quickly with the AFCC to do some uh, six um, episode series around what's happening with the courts and, um, you know, with, the new, with COVID-19 and what changes are we seeing? What can we do? What can't we do? 
And uh, so we actually helped sponsor that event with um, OurFamilyWizard.com, who is a great communication app. So um, teaming up with them to host these webinars has, has been that first thing that we've done that's virtual, but we expect a lot more of these virtual educations to um, happen in the near future. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for, I mean, as far as Johnny and I are concerned, anything that kind of furthers family law, furthers what we call the evolution of dissolution, having healthier kids as a result of yeah. parents who work together and try to make sure that the transition from a all family under one roof to families that are still families, but living separately. That's huge for us. So thank you. You guys rock. Thank you, Laura. Johnny, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm Laura, and you just met Chris Beck from Soberlink, the company that takes a modern approach to alcohol monitoring. They have saved so many of my clients. Gosh, I never knew a company like Soberlink existed. I wonder if Nicole Kidman and Keith Urban use something like that. What? Well, apparently they have some prenup. You'd be the expert on the prenup situation. You could tell me if it's even viable or valid. But apparently they have a prenup that says if he drinks, he loses money. Nicole Kidman certainly doesn't have much tolerance for drug or alcohol abuse. It's reported in CheatSheet.com, an article by Stephen Preston, saying that in the prenuptial agreement between her and Urban, it states that the country singer would receive $600,000 a year for every year they are together, but only if Urban doesn't use illegal narcotics or drink excessively. Okay, I don't buy it. Something like that. I don't buy it. First of all, first of all, if that is in their prenup, do you think that they just sent the prenup to Cheat Sheet magazine so that they could write a story about it? Second of all, as we've discussed on the show, it's probably not enforceable to have something like that in a prenuptial agreement. Third of all, if Nicole Kidman is hanging out with and living with Keith Urban, she's probably going to know if he's drinking. She's probably not going to need Soberlink. So I reject that entire story, whoever it was by. And let's just move on, shall we? Rejected. Yes. <laughs> In California and the nine other states where community property laws govern the division of assets and debts acquired during a marriage, the moment you tie the knot, everything you earn, produce, or create becomes community property from that day forward. That means one half of it belongs to your spouse. By the way, debt is treated the same way. For a divorcing couple that lives in one of these states, the law dictates that their marital property will be divided equally between them. This division is contrasted a bit by the equitable distribution laws, which regulate the other 41 states where marital property is divided, quote, equitably, end quote, between the parties. But what is equitable and is it fair? We're going to dive deeper into all of this in today's special download dedicated to deconstructing prenuptial agreements. And this week on the It's Over Easy Insights blog, you can also read about prenuptial agreements in an article written by my friend, esteemed colleague, and matrimonial law expert, attorney Judith L. Poehler, partner at Prior Cashman in New York City. She's been named to the Super Lawyers New York Metro Top 50 list of women lawyers on seven occasions, and in 2018, The Hollywood Reporter recognized Judy for her work in divorce. She's a frequent source in The New York Times, and she was named among the top seven family law attorneys in the United States by Spears Magazine. And you guys are in luck because she's joining me right here, right now, in L.A. to deconstruct and explain prenuptial agreements. Thanks for being here today, Judy Poehler. Hi, Laura. Nice <laughs> to be here. We had dinner last night, too. You guys should know. So <laughs> anyway, tell us, and, and I will tell you this also, people call me all the time. They're looking for somebody that's licensed to practice law in New York State, which I am not. And I refer them to Judy. And what I say is she's the smarter, hotter Laura Wasser. So that's she's she's just really, really amazing. She has a very wonderful way about her. But in addition to that, she pretty much knows everything about matrimonial law, not just in New York State. So I love working with her. I love being able to refer to her and I love picking her brain about things. So tell us from your perspective, if I was a client coming to you, Judy, and I was a young ingenue that made lots of money every movie that I made and I was about to get married to who I'm certain will be the person I stay with for the rest of my years and my business manager or my entertainment attorney had said, you really should have a prenup and I went to you and I said, I just, I don't see why I need it. I'm in love. It's so unromantic. What do you think, Judy Poehler? So I'm going to talk about it from a New York perspective yes. or the equitable distribution perspective because I think 
it might be more advantageous to have a prenup when you're in one of those states as opposed to a community property state like California where there's much more certainty. Yes. But even just backing up for a moment, because even with California where you know that if you get married and you subsequently divorce, you're dividing your assets equally, there's still a lot of unknowns. There's still valuation issues. If you're in a family-run business, you're all of a sudden going to have these experts and appraisers coming and digging into all of the family's books and records, and people don't want to do that. And they don't want to share that information. And so even with the certainty as to how the division will take place, you don't want the process. So a lot of times, regardless of what state you live in, people want to avoid the valuation. And that's probably the biggest reason that people do prenups. Um, It's not just the, the celebrity ingenues, but those people for sure, because then you have to be tied with respect to sharing revenues going forward. But family businesses where some lucky kid all of a sudden is going in with mom or dad and is inheriting and working in the business. So there's a certainty that comes with avoiding the valuation. And in New York, which is where I practice, though, a lot of states that have equitable distribution have comparable provisions. A business interest is not divided equally, even in a longer-term marriage. It's divided in accordance with some percentage that the non-titled spouse through his or her direct or indirect contributions gets. And who the hell knows what are appropriate direct, indirect contributions. And the biggest area of litigation is around the percentage that a non-titled spouse will get. So right now, for example, I'm representing the wife of a hedge fund owner. They, when they started, they were 23 years old. They had not a pot to piss in. And over the years, they have amassed this huge amount of wealth. And the business is titled in his name, and she helped find the space for the first office. She helped come up with the name. She helped do all these things to help him really put together this great company that became and is very successful. And so now, after 25 years of marriage, we're in litigation, and he's saying she gets 20% of the value of this business that she's dedicated her life to. And yes, she had three kids. They had three kids together. She's gotten a lot of benefits. But 20% over a 25-year period for the largest asset that they have is a tough pill to swallow. If she lived in California, she'd get 50%. Right. So, wow, that is really a big difference. And what do you, I mean, I know what you're probably arguing for. What do courts usually do? A lot of people that practice in New York State have said to me, well, it does come out close to 50-50. I mean, is is his argument of 20% something that doesn't make a ton of sense? Or is it is that actually a logical conclusion. So with business interests, he's not completely off the mark. And we have a running list of of cases and how courts are coming out in these cases. And in New York State, we have four departments that the appellate level. And so Manhattan is in the first department. So we look at what are the first department coming out with in terms of the affirming court's decisions. And frankly, they really do end up being somewhere between 25 and 35%. But more lately, they're in the 25% range. And the theory behind it is that the titled 
spouse did it through his or her tenacity and hard work. And unless you can really show direct contributions, like the spouse came to the office, worked in the office, did the investing, which frankly is unlikely, right. you're really looking at somewhere in the 25, 30, 33% range. And it's those are big, very big swings in sure. numbers. Now, had they had a prenuptial agreement where they agreed that what any business interest would be split equally if they divorced, they'd be in a totally different situation. Totally different situation. Totally. Though I do just want to say, though, that most people, when they're even with doing prenups, aren't going to agree to a 50-50 split because they know they wouldn't have to do that with right. the law. But at least with some number or percentage, you're not humiliated in testifying to all that, these What you things. did and how you wore Justify special clothing to certain events and how you arranged things and made the tuna casserole for the boss in the first year of work. Question, just so that anybody listening who does not know, what is a prenuptial agreement? So a prenuptial agreement is a binding contract between two parties who have done full financial disclosure, who have had counsel representing them and understand what their rights are and what they might be waiving their rights are. So the idea with a prenuptial agreement is to deviate from what the law of a particular jurisdiction may be. So, but isn't it also, particularly in an equitable distribution state, not necessarily deviate, but clarify what you want to be applied to? I mean, California, I meet with people and I say, look, if you get married tomorrow, then everything from then on that you create or earn is going to be community property unless you have a prenup and you're deviating. Sounds to me like in equitable distribution states like New York, you're not exactly sure what the law is with some of this stuff because it's, quote, equitable. And therefore, wouldn't it be nice to pin it down so that if and when we get divorced, we don't have to start arguing about it then? Yes. Um, and there's even more, though, because what you just basically summarized properly from what I was saying is you have certainty as to an amount you might get. But frankly, when somebody has a business interest or knows they're going to have a business interest, what they really do in prenups is have the business interest be off the table completely. Right. And in exchange, there's some dollar amount. So not only do you have the certainty as to what you will get, but you don't have the intrusiveness of people going and valuing, and you know, having these valuation experts come in and look at things and then add back in perks, it's not an absolute science. There's a lot of subjectivity and and it's very intrusive. And it's really expensive. Really so another expensive. thing is, do you want to pay your spouse? Do you want to pay all of these experts coming in? But I do want to make sure that our listeners know, all of that being said, there are super, super stringent disclosure rules. So in order to have a prenup actually be worth the paper it's written on, when you are at the front side of this, you're going to have to disclose what that company is worth at the time, right? I mean, it's not going to be good unless you really say, this is what we have and this is what we think the value is. Yes. When I do prenups and there's a business, I do a range yes, of value. Because you don't want anyone saying, well, in 1997, you said it was only worth this. So yes, ranges are safer, but at least disclosing what you think the range is. Yes. And the reality is understanding that the growth in that business that might be for five years or 25 years or 30 years, depending on how long the marriage lasts, that the appreciation in it could be significant. And they're agreeing whatever it is, it is. It is, and in most instances, again, people look to just take it off the table. Right. So... In California, we cannot include provisions regarding child custody or support. Same true in New York State? Same true in New York, though if the couple already has children and they've been living as an intact couple, I do often include 
custody and child support when it's been negotiated. And there's still the possibility that it might not be enforceable. On the other hand, because the children are in being and have a lifestyle already, it often is enforceable. But you're absolutely correct. No kids, nothing to talk about. So getting back to our hypothetical ingenue, I know that you just wrote an article called Prenuptial Agreements Are on the Rise, Millennials Grow Up and Wise Up. That's going to be coming this month on the It's Over Easy Insights blog. Tell us a little bit, because I know that I have had these ingenues, young people, you have a daughter that's around this age, who may say things like, prenuptial agreements are just pre-negotiating your divorce. They kill romance. If somebody asks you for a prenup, he or she doesn't really love you. They don't trust you. And if the divorce doesn't ever happen, the prenup is meaningless. So why bother? Also, people always say to me, well, I heard they're not really enforceable. So what do you say to those millennials, both in your article and in real life? Well, as you say, I do have a daughter who's a millennial, and I'm really lucky that I've gotten to spend time with many of her friends as well. And this is a bit of a different generation, and they grow up their dating process is less romantic. And so this whole notion of a prenup not being romantic is a little less of an issue. It's just not as daunting for them. And many of the millennials have grown up with divorced parents, so they know realities. They also, millennials lived through the recession in 2007 and 2008. So these are people that get that there are benefits to having certainty and knowing what their financial peace will be in the event of a divorce. They're also getting married later. In 1965, the average age for a woman getting married was 21 and a man 23. In 2017, the average age for a woman was 29 and for a man 30. Those are big age differences. And we know if you've been out in the workforce for many years before you get married, you're accumulating your own assets. So there's more to protect and more to be conscious about. Will you, if a client asks you to, do a cohabitation agreement that then morphs into a prenup if and when they get married? So it's funny you ask because I just finished one and we actually did a separate cohabitation agreement and a separate prenuptial agreement, but we provided different provisions with a prenuptial agreement. Depending on the person I'm representing in the process, depends on whether I want the cohabitation to become the prenuptial agreement or there be a different agreement in the event of a marriage. Got it. So I'm a guy and I call you up and I say, Judy, I've known you forever. You represented me in my divorce. I'm getting married and I'm going to ask my girlfriend to marry me and I've got the ring and I know you're going to tell me that I should have a prenup. How do I start this conversation? Good question, because as you know, (laughs) we get that call all the time. So I think the most important answer to that question or guidance to be given is really, really early in the process. Do not wait till a month before the wedding, two months before the wedding. Just take the bull by the horn and do it really early on. Maybe even before you propose. I think that is the best thing. Like on the dating app profile, you should say, we'll be having a prenup if it works out. Absolutely. I I think that should go on people's (laughs) dating apps. And, you know, I, I think that communication and honesty is such an integral piece to a relationship. And if that's something that is important to you and you want to have, start the conversation early. I mean, the worst thing for couples is that person who's always known he was going to insist on a prenup, but was just too scared that she'd be pissed off at him until 
you know, and waited until um, close to the wedding. That is the worst. The last thing you want to be doing when you're doing your final fitting and and picking the flowers is talking to your lawyer. Right. Yes, about your divorce. Wrapping up, what are a few things that will make for sure a prenuptial agreement invalid? Close, close, close to the wedding. So not the night before, guys. You need to get it done. There's all kinds of statutory requirements in different states for how long before you must have negotiated, provided the final draft, and even signed. What else? Full financial disclosure. Like No hiding, no playing games, no underestimating. You've got to come forward. And really, I would say most importantly, to have independent counsel and good counsel who advises you of your rights and what you're waiving. And I'm often in the position of having somebody come to me and I say, you really shouldn't be signing this. This is such a terrible agreement for you. You don't know what the future holds. And she will say to me or he will say to me, I'm fine. I trust him. I love him. I know we're never going to get divorced. And I end up writing a letter saying all these reasons why this is a bad deal. So that is a terrible... We lawyers call these CYA letters, which cover your ass, meaning we told you you shouldn't have signed this. Don't come back and sue us later. Correct. And don't come yelling at me 10 years down the road How when you you're let walking. me sign right. this so i mean there are certainly people that will come to me and i will look at their situation and say you may not need a prenuptial agreement maybe they're both trust fund kids and the money is all going to be separate property i mean i don't know there could be circumstances where a prenup isn't necessary or when one or the other says i really do not want to have a prenuptial agreement To those people, I will generally say, then at least have the kind of conversations that you would have about the expectations in your relationship that would go along with having a prenuptial agreement. Talk about some of the things that people should be speaking about when all are, everything they're seeing is the rose-colored glasses and how beautiful and romantic it all is. And then once literally the honeymoon is over, all of these expectations which haven't been discussed kind of get crazy. Some like real life things that we have seen that become issues for people. Well, so I'm going to answer some of the practical points that I, I do focus on with people. Um, And if they are trust fund babies or expect to inherit a lot, I will have the conversation with the parents Mm -hmm. and it give them some advice on how to do their estate planning so that their kid may not receive outright significant assets, instead receive them in trust, discretionary with the trustee to make distributions. But since at least in New York, the laws, and I think it's here the same way, whatever you come into the marriage with, if you keep it separate and you don't commingle it with marital assets, it's yours. So I really go through with people and look at what are you coming in with, and I tell them it's like you don't have it. The door is closed on those assets. You can't touch them, don't add to them, just leave them be. So it's protecting what you have. I think with respect to what's the conversation with a couple, it really is about talking about how we're going to deal with finances and budgets and expectations of what is our marital life going to look like and are we going to save? I just finished a prenup with a couple, and I, I had the the now husband, really, really good-looking, successful 32-year-old in his own right, and he was marrying this beautiful trust fund baby who had exponentially more money than he ever will have in his life. But their prenup had his earnings being marital property. And that was something the his now father-in-law insisted on. But what he made sure what happened is that the couple, the husband and now wife, talked about a budget. 
and what they were going to live on together and what they were going to put aside. And it became a really important conversation to have. Absolutely. And guys, we talk about this on this show all the time, particularly women who have historically not been as in touch with financial conversations and money things. We are having more dual income families. We are having people who are getting married or moving in together that have been in the workforce. If you're not talking about this stuff while you're in a relationship, whether it be pre-cohabitation or pre-marriage, you're missing a big piece of what it is to be in a romantic partnership. And your romantic partnership is probably not going to do so well. Gone are the days where one party or the other, typically the man, is, I'll take care of the money. Don't you worry your pretty little head about it. I got this, whatever. I tell people all the time, if you get divorced, you're going to see all of those financials. So you might as well ask for them and start seeing them now. You may not be the person that wants to be sitting there balancing a checkbook every month, but you certainly should be aware and have access to that information. And those are the kind of things that really make sense to talk about. I do know the prenuptial agreements that I have done, even when people kind of get go in kicking and screaming, they come out healthier for it as a result of really having their eyes open and their expectations clarified prior to getting married. Totally agree. I I have come to believe it's healthy for the couple to have this conversation and go into the marriage without resentment and anger. They work it through. Totally true. We had uh, Frank Morris for Divorce Lawyers for Men on And he pointed out that everyone enters into a prenuptial agreement with the state when they get married. So you're adhering to some kind of law. It may as well be law that you make up on your own and adhere to that. But whatever you do, make sure that you understand what the laws are in your state. If you're entering into a contract, which you are when you get married, know what the terms are. And Judy... Thank you for being here with us today. You Thank totally you for rock. having me. Check out her article that is going to be on It's Over Easy, Prenuptial Agreements on the Rise, Millennials Grow Up and Wake Up. Also, I uh, wrote one a while ago, Prenuptial Agreements 101. That's what I tell people. Oh, I'll have that Prenuptial Agreement 101 call with you. We loved having you. Look for Judy more on It's Over Easy, and I have a feeling she will be a guest in the future as well because I'm going to keep hitting her up. Thanks, guys. <laughs> 